just want to welcome you into church. Welcome to part two of our message series that we've called Resurrection Stories, where we're taking a look at the historic resurrection appearances of Jesus, but, but not just to look at them as moments in history and think, oh, well, that was nice, that was 2,000 years ago. Actually, there's something we can learn from them today. Actually, there's something from those, those narratives 2,000 years ago that we can apply to our lives today. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to turn with me to John uh, chapter 20. Uh, John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 19. And just to give you the, the context for this, this is the Sunday evening of the resurrection. So the resurrection has happened. Jesus has appeared to the women uh, outside or inside the tomb, whichever way you want to read that. He's probably appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And now the disciples are in a room together uh, where Jesus is about to appear. So we'll start at verse 19. Verse 19 says this, that Sunday Evening, so Resurrection Sunday, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. So, so, so now most of the disciples have seen Jesus. They've, they've spoken to Jesus. They've had an incredible experience of the risen Jesus. They suddenly got a new sense of joy, a new sense of peace, a new sense of hope a new sense of, of, of gladness, a new sense of purpose, but one of them wasn't there. One of them missed it. And I want you to imagine what it must have been like in that, to, to have been Thomas in that moment when everyone else in your close-knit group has, has seen something, has experienced something, but you missed it. They saw it, they experienced it, they, they witnessed it, but you Missed it. I don't know about you, I hate missing out on something other people have seen. I hate missing out on, on, on things that people have experienced. It might be something on TV, it might be an event, it might be something bigger. And, and we have things in our lives that we prioritize to make sure we don't miss out on. For some of us, it might be a sport. Today, 3 o'clock, Pontypool are in Cardiff. Everyone, you just need to know. <laughs> that national alert that's going off, that's an alert to put S4C on so you can watch the game. Okay, just, just so you know, the government are reminding you nationally to stick S4C on. Um, but, but you know, there's, there's no greater conversation killer than missing out on something. You know that? You know when someone comes up to you in work or in school and says, did you see that program last night? And you're like, no. <laughs> Kills a conversation. And you don't want to be that person. So, so what you do, you, you lie and make up you did. Did you see that thing? Oh, I know. Wasn't it emotional? I had goosebumps and everything. Who was your favorite? Oh, yeah, I like them too. And there's a way of getting away with not actually seeing the show, but making everyone else think you did because you didn't want to miss out. Here's Thomas. He missed out. And I don't know if you know this. There's an actual condition that psychologists have, have called FOMO, the fear of missing out. And psychologists have defined this because they say it's a driving force why, and I want to be careful because I think most of our youth have left, it's particularly teenagers, the reason they are glued to their phones is because of this. The reason they're glued to social media is because they are terrified they'll miss something. 
They're terrified they'll miss out and they feel they have to stay connected just in case someone is having a greater experience and they don't want to be left out. They want to be part of the conversation. They want to be part of that hot topic. And what they don't realize is social media is everyone else's highlight reel. It's just people's best bits. You know, the grass that's greener over there, do you know why it's greener? Because it's AstroTurf. <laughs> I spent 10 years teaching teenagers, and, and to be honest, with all the, all the garbage on social media and all the absolute rubbish you see, I, I coined a new phrase, GEMO. Glad I'm missing out. Anyone with, anyone with me? And in our text, the disciples saw Jesus, but Thomas missed it. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed what everyone else saw and experienced. And, and possibly, the, do you know, you know this feeling, the one moment you're out of the room and it happens? The one moment Thomas is out of the room that the thing that he hoped for the most actually happened and he missed it. So I wonder what it would have been like to be Thomas. I'd have been a bit confused. I'd have been a bit disappointed. I'd maybe even start to feel a bit rejected. That the moment I was out of the room, Jesus turned up. We laugh because we, we, we do prayer every, every other Tuesday. I'd encourage you to come along to our, our prayer meetings. And it's, it's a laugh we got with our leadership team because we had, we had one incredible prayer meeting. We, we, the Holy Spirit just moved for an hour and a half in the whole room. Guess what? I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I missed it. The one time God decides to turn up, I wasn't there. But, he, but he's feeling these emotions, you know, he's out of the room and he's possibly this, has Jesus just rejected me? So he says this, I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in his hands, until I put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. And to paraphrase Thomas, he basically says this, do you know what, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. And it's a phrase I'm sure we're all familiar with. And I'm, to be honest, I'm sure we've all said it. You know, if you said to a, a, a Welsh rugby fan in the late 90s, that Welsh team, they're going to be the most successful statistically team in the, two, in the 2000s. You said, I'll believe that when I see it. If you told my grandmother that one day a man would walk on the moon, she'd have said, I'll believe it when I see it. If you'd have told me the Pontypool will be playing in the Principality Stadium today, three o'clock kickoff, remember that. Do you know what? After all that club's been through, I'd tell you, do you know what? I'll believe it when I see it. If you'd have said to me 10 years ago we'd be leading a church and we'd spend two years of leading that church, doing church in our living room, I'd have said, I'll believe it when I see it. And here's Thomas saying, well, you've seen Jesus? I'll believe it when I see it. And he's given this name, Doubting Thomas. It's really interesting because that name isn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Actually, Jesus never called him Doubting Thomas. And it's, it's fascinating because he's been judged for one moment of weakness. He's been labeled for eternity for one moment of weakness. His whole life has been summarized by actually what I think is a perfectly human emotion. He's been labeled a doubter for uttering one line, I'll believe it when I see it. Do you know Thomas wasn't always a doubter? There's a story earlier on in John where, where Jesus is about to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus. And the disciples, they don't want Jesus to go. They say, Jesus, don't go. You're going to get killed if you go there. Thomas goes, I'm in. Let's go. Let's die with Jesus. That doesn't sound like a doubter to me. 
and he's been given a permanent name because of a temporary situation. And I'm not saying Thomas didn't doubt, I'm not saying Thomas was, was perfect, but if you look at the other disciples, Peter denied Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. Do you know what? Thomas wasn't in the room. Do you know why the other disciples were in the room? Verse 19, they were hiding. They were only there because they were hiding. And I want to submit to you, all Thomas wanted was some proof. I'll say it another way. Thomas wanted his own experience. You might have seen it, but I won't believe unless. I quite admire Thomas for that. Because he's saying, listen, I'm just not going to take your word for it. I want to experience it myself. I'm not just going to accept what you say. I want to have my own experience. Thomas wanted his own experience with Jesus. He wanted that desire for himself. And what's really important for us is when someone talks to us about God or talks to us about Jesus, we don't take people's word for it, but we say, do you know what? I want that for myself. I want that experience for myself. I, want a per- I don't want to borrow my experience of Jesus from someone else. It's got to be mine. It's got to be my own. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you've come for a while, maybe you've checked this out, maybe you're watching online and you are very, very welcoming and you, you, you've listened to the words of the songs and you've listened to the messages and I just want to encourage you, don't take our word for it. But have that experience yourself. We say, God, I need a personal experience of you. God, I need you to show up for real for me. I think that's the prayer that Thomas prayed. God, I, I can't take your word for it. I need it for myself. And it took a week. And we read in the text this time they're all together. And I want to spot this because John's writing this and he makes this specific point of saying Thomas was with them. He wants us to know Thomas there. And that's really important because it tells me this. Thomas brought his doubt to church. I can see a lot of people getting uncomfortable now. He brought his doubt to church because he didn't have the same sense of peace or the same sense of joy or the same sense of gladness as everyone else, but he brought himself anyway. And he brought himself with his concerns, with his doubt, and he, he brought himself to church. You know, sometimes you've got to drag yourself to church and say, Do you know what, here I am. With my fears, with my insecurities, with my doubts, with my issues, and, I, and maybe I still won't believe it until I see it, but do you know what? Here I am. It takes faith to, have, it takes faith to do that, to have doubts and fears and, and uncertainty and, and still get out of bed and drag yourself to church. Because everything in you wants to stay at home, by the way. I read this morning, they said that Sunday morning church is Saturday night's decision. And it's so true, because everything in us wants to stay at home, stay in bed, stay in bed where it's safe, it's secure, and, and suddenly there's Thomas, and he's in the room with the disciples, and suddenly Jesus appears. And he's already appeared to the disciples, but I want you to catch this, because he comes for the one who asked. And it says this, suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side, don't be faithless any longer, believe. Do you know we think Jesus comes for the one who's singing the loudest? We think Jesus comes for the one who's shouting and dancing the loudest and, 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 and jumping up and down the most, but actually Jesus comes for the one who's lost their joy. Jesus comes for the one who's lost their song and lost their dance and he's lost their sense of victory because the Bible says this, he's what? He's an ever-present help in time of need. He's an ever 
ever-present help in time of need. Jesus tells us in Matthew, I am with you always. And so Jesus steps into the room and he makes himself available for the doubting. He makes himself available for the, for the discouraged. He makes himself available for the disenfranchised. He comes where they are and says, come on, let's fix your doubts. Let's fix that unbelief. You want an experience of me? Here I am. Here is what you need. Church, can I tell you, your doubts won't keep Jesus away. He's not angry at you for having doubts, but he says, here I am. Experience me. And what's amazing about this narrative is he walks up to Thomas and says, come on, this is what you wanted. But how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know what it would take for Thomas to, what it would take for Thomas to believe? How did Jesus know what Thomas had said when Jesus wasn't even in the room? Can I encourage you, Jesus hears you even when you think he's not in the room? Psalm 139 says, God knows our thoughts even when we are far away. God didn't move. It's when we're far away and he still hears our thoughts. The New Testament, Jesus uses the Greek word gnosko and it means to know. But, but it's not just knowing, it means a total, complete knowledge. It's actually a language used in the context of love. It's, it's a language for lovers that they, they know each other. It, 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 it's that intimate. Can I tell you, God knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows what it takes for you to have a breakthrough, but he waits for you to ask and say, I want an experience for myself, and then he comes into the room. And Jesus, in this, this moment, I think he's there simply because Thomas asked. Because Thomas came to the church and said, you know what, I've got doubts, I want to see it for myself. And Jesus appeared. And so Jesus offers Thomas his hands and his sides, says, come and see, come and touch. And, and the Greek that Jesus uses is, is, is really interesting because we don't get this. In my translation, Jesus says, put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand into the wound. But the Greek doesn't say anything about putting, it says about reaching. Reach out your finger, reach out your hand. And there's no evidence that Thomas ever did it. I like to think he did. Because I like to think that Thomas reached out. Because I'm convinced that finding the answer to our doubts involves us reaching out. Finding the answer to our questions involves us reaching out. That answer might, might just be in front of you. Jesus says, I want you to reach for it. You know the story of the woman, she's got an issue of blood and Jesus is walking past. What happens? She pushes through the crowd and we read, she reaches to touch the hem of his garment. Her answer came when she reached out. Her answer came when she pushed through. And when we look at Thomas, Thomas, he looks at Jesus and he says these incredible words. My Lord and my God. And I want to hone in on that phrase for a moment. My Lord and my God. It's an incredible confession of faith. And you might think, oh, well, Thomas is just saying the same thing a different way. But he's actually saying two things. Jesus is my God and he's my Lord. And I want to suggest, and I want to be quite strong this morning if I can, that, that, that a lot of us have said, Jesus is my God. But he, we haven't said he's our Lord. He's my saviour, but he's not in charge of my life. He's my redeemer, but he doesn't have a final say. And I want to suggest that, that actually the reason we say this is, is possibly because of the country we live in. And, and just bear with me in this, because, you know, in our country, we have a king. But he has no impact on our lives. We've got what's called a constitutional monarchy. 
What that means is literally it means this phrase, we have a king who reigns but does not rule. That's what we have. In our society, our United Kingdom, the way we run our society isn't like a kingdom. It's actually, we call it a democracy. A democracy is all about us. We don't have a written down constitution, by the way, but if you read the American constitution, it starts with this. We, the people, it's all about us. In a constitution, in a, in a democracy, my opinion and my vote matters. I get a vote. I get to use it. I can elect someone. If I don't like someone, if I don't like their policies, I can just elect them out. I can write a letter. I can write a petition. Do you know we've got that power because we're self-ruled? That's the whole idea of government. Now, on earth, I'm all for this. I think we could be doing it a bit better. But I'm all for this on earth. But do you know what? We've got a king. And the Bible isn't written in a democracy, it's written in a kingdom. And in a kingdom, everything starts with God. In the beginning was the word. It starts with God and not us. In a kingdom, my opinion and my vote, they don't matter. Sorry. I don't even get a vote. Why? Because I'm God-ruled. But here's the great thing, that sounds really harsh, but you know what the Bible says? He makes us heirs. That our king comes close enough to us to make us heirs. That's why his kingdom is the best one to be in, because we get to be friends of the king. But I want to suggest in, 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 in Christendom, we've got a king who reigns but doesn't rule. And we love the Jesus who is meek and mild, who's gentle and merciful and gracious and loving and gentle and strong. And all that's true about Jesus. He is all of those things, but he's, all, he's our Lord which means he has to rule. And, and some of us don't like that. One pastor put it like this, and I love this phrase. We love his attributes, but not his absolutes. And maybe, just maybe, we've never experienced the authority and the power of the king in our lives because we haven't made him king of our lives. And we're not unique in that. That's something actually that's been going on in creation. Adam and Eve, they had one job. One job. Don't eat that fruit. But they decided they wanted to be as wise as God, so they lost out in paradise. And Adam and Eve have children. At the end of Genesis 3, it says this. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So the, so, so the people realize they've got a king. They realize there's a, there's, a, there's a Lord, and they start to worship him. But a thousand years later, God looks down at the people and says... It says this, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. See that gap? And then you've got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. They, they fight for God. We see the development of worship. We get the tabernacle. We get the Ark of the Covenant. And they're, they're, they're constantly saying, put God first. Put God first in your life. Make him Lord. Make him king. And live holy lives. Worship God in everything you do. And then, then Joshua dies. And we see it in the book of Judges, this slow turn where the people start to compromise. And it says this, and these are, these are incredible lines, in those days Israel had no king. So they did whatever seemed right in whose eyes? Their own. And you might say, well, that's Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus is king and Jesus sorted all that out. But look at what Jesus said. Why do you keep calling me Lord when you don't do what I say? 
Am I Lord or not? Then he says this, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching and then follows it. It's like a person building a house on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. Can I promise you when your life is built on the word of God, when you, when you take in his word and you follow it, when you do something with it, when you submit to it, when you build your life on it, you'll be stronger for it. Your whole life will be stronger. Do you know what? Even Jesus had to submit to the will of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus kneels before God at his lowest point and says, God, I don't want to do this, but your will be done, not mine. God, I surrender to you as Lord. And I promise you, if you do that, you'll build a strong life. You'll build strong relationships. You'll do better in your workplace. You'll do better in your marriage. When you make him Lord of your finances, they'll work better. When you make him Lord of your mind, you'll think better. When you make him Lord of your words, you'll speak better. When you make him Lord of your body, you'll use your body in a better way. Are you with me? Thank you, those four people. About three weeks' time, we got the coronation of King Charles, uh, King Charles III. Uh, and there'll be this massive coronation ceremony in Westminster Abbey. And, uh, and it's part of the ritual you have this crown placed on his head. Now, I don't know if you want to read this. I don't know if you know this. The diamond at the bottom of that crown is 317.4 carats. It's the second largest cut diamond in the world. It's worth 41 million pounds. That diamond, that one diamond. The largest cut diamond in the world is found in the scepter they have in his hand. It's about the size of your fist. It's 300, sorry, 530.2 carats. It's worth 60 million. You're looking at 100 million pounds worth of diamonds. Not to mention the other 2,867 diamonds, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and 4 rubies in that crown. Now all the women are looking at the men and going, you need to up your game. <laughs> and they're putting all that on the head of someone who isn't perfect. So if they're putting all that on the head of someone who didn't die for you and didn't die for me, how much more should we be crowning Jesus with who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? That's why we sang, crown him with many crowns. And I tell you this, because these are the jewels that King Charles will wear. This is what they'll crown King Charles with. But here's the thing. He's already king. He became king the moment Elizabeth II breathed her last breath. Charles III has been king since September. He's already king, but he hasn't been crowned. And for some of us, Jesus is king, but he hasn't been crowned. And we're keeping that crown to ourselves. Because we've decided that actually some parts of our life, I want to live in a constitutional monarchy. Where I want a king who reigns, but he ain't going to rule. We asked the band to sing the song we just sung, so I want to encourage you, if you haven't crowned him king, then you need to. If you haven't confessed him as king, then you need to. The, the goal for you, our goal for you this morning, is you crown him with many crowns. Many crowns. A lamb upon He's already on the throne. He's already there. We need to crown him. Listen how the heavenly anthem drowns all music, but it, nothing else comes close. It drowns everything in our lives out. Our worship to Jesus drowns out 
everything. Awake, my wake up. Sing of him who died for thee. Hail him as thy matchless king. There's no one like you, Jesus. Nothing comes close to you. We sang the very first song. It was intentional this morning. The very first song we sang, our God is greater. Our God is higher. Nothing can stand against us. And it's our job to say, okay, God, I, nothing comes close to you. You are Lord of my life. I surrender to you, my Lord and my God. Timothy brought his doubts to church. He brought his doubts to Jesus. He gets a revelation of Jesus, and then he says, he's my Lord and my God. That's what we want for you. I think that's the journey we want this community to go on, that they bring their doubts, they bring their questions, to, to bring it to church, and we make space and we give opportunity for Jesus to turn up, for them to have a relation with Jesus, and then they say, he's my Lord and my God. Jesus said this, come and, come and touch, come and see. David said this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It says this a bit earlier on. It says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from my troubles. I brought my trouble. I brought my shame. I brought my doubts. I brought my questions. I brought them to God and he set me free. He healed me. He revived me. He restored me. He rebuilt me. Taste and see that the Lord is he's good people. He's good. And, and everything we do as a church is designed so that people get a taste of the goodness of God. You know what it's like when you get a taste of something good? That feeling when you put something in your mouth for the first time and you're like, what just happened? When you have chocolate for the first time or a great piece of steak or your first kebab. I remember my first kebab. I was 16 years old. It was a revelation from heaven. Can I tell you the first time I had cheesecake, it changed my life. Now you think about it, the name cheesecake doesn't sound that appealing. A cake made of cheese. But when you put it in your mouth, something just, just happened and I saw, I tasted and I saw it was good. And even with Lily now, Lily's at the stage now, she's, she's coming up to 18 months and for a little while we've been giving her, you know, proper food if you like. And, and we gave her strawberries for the first time a few weeks ago. Her face told us, that was good. <laughs> she had, actually, this week, this, this, this week, she had a pear for the first time. And I'm not talking about a, a bit of pear. She had a pear. Because the look on her face was like, that was amazing. Give me more. Can I tell you, it's the same when you taste Jesus for the first time. When you taste his goodness, when you taste his mercy, when you get a real taste of Jesus, you can't help but go, wow, I want more of that. Give me more because I've tasted and it was good. But the problem is, we live in a society that it's okay, that it, it tells us it's okay to put certain foods together. People who put lemon with their cheesecake. As your pastor, I'm telling you, it says in the Bible, they should be nowhere near each other. It doesn't say that, by the way, before anyone writes in. That's just a, my theological understanding. 
But you know what? God doesn't need extra ingredients. Actually, God doesn't mix. God doesn't mix with anything. He says right in, in, in Exodus, he says, you will not have any other gods before me. What does he mean? You don't put anything else ahead of me. I'm God, you don't mix. And we try to mix God with our agenda. We try to mix in God with our, our opinions. We try to mix in God with our, with our lifestyle. And it doesn't mix. Actually, it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. You know what happens when you put lemon in cheesecake? It makes it bitter and sour. You know what happens when you put lemon in your life? You end up bitter and sour. Because you haven't left it alone. And we wonder why things aren't working the way we wanted them to. We wonder why we're not fulfilled. And we wonder why nothing just seems to satisfy our hearts. Church, can I tell you, ditch the lemon. I hope you know where I'm going with this. I hope you're not going to go out and literally throw your lemons out. I haven't got an issue with lemons. I'm, I'm being metaphorical here. But make Jesus Lord. Make him Lord over everything. And I promise you, your life will taste better. I want to invite the band back up. And, you know, tradition tells us that, that Thomas ended up actually in India. Uh, Thomas ended up as a, a, an apostle, if you like, to, to India. He planted 20 churches. He was a man responsible for bringing the gospel to the country of India. But it started from this place. It started from this place of profession. Jesus is my God and my Lord. And that, that profession takes him from being a doubter to being the man that introduced India to the gospel. He brings the gospel to entirely new people group. In fact, he's martyred. He's killed by a, if you read tradition, he's killed by a spear because he refused to deny God. And in India, he's regarded as, as their kind of patron saint of, of Christianity. And, and in, in July, uh, Indians have what's called St. Thomas Day, where they celebrate, Saint, it's Indian Christians, by the way, they, they celebrate St. Thomas bringing the gospel to India. But it starts here, where he says, you're my God and my Lord. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Maybe it's the first time, maybe you, you actually need to recommit to this. If you've been a Christian for a while, where you're saying, do you know what? I need to make Jesus my Lord. He's been my God for ages. But maybe he hasn't been my Lord. And I need to reset that. And I need to make my, my confession full. Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And I want to do something different this morning. Can we stand? I think when we stand, we, we add value. I think when we stand, we attach uh, honor. There's an intentionality when we stand. I'll just ask you to bow your head. The band are going to lead us. And I'll have asked the band to lead this song that we sang earlier. These are the words, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Everything I need is in him. Christ is my reward. He's got my devotion. I want you to pray that this morning. Jesus, I'm devoting myself to you again. Be my Lord. There's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. God, you're all I need. All I want is you, Jesus. If there's anything in my life that it's offensive to you, reveal it to me, convict me of it, and help me to get rid of it. God, I repent of anything that's meant you have not been Lord of my life. Anything that's meant you haven't been first in my life. God, I'm sorry for the times I've put myself first. Jesus, I make you Lord of my life, Lord of my time, 
Lord of my finances, Lord of my relationships, Lord of my body, Lord of my thoughts, Lord of my attitudes and my actions, because you are enough. And I want you to declare this. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm all in. I'm not going to leave here the same way I came in. I'm putting the cross before me, the world behind me. Jesus, be my Lord. I want us to sing this song, church, as our declaration this morning, that he is our Lord and our God. There's no one like him. Nothing comes close to him. We commit to Jesus. We give him all of ourselves, and we know he is enough. And all God's people said, let's sing together.